we begin this morning, I want to go ahead and just sort of recite to you uh, the verse that we are using as just a key verse for these uh, messages during the first three Sundays of Advent. It is Luke 19, verse 10, and it simply goes like this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. I'm calling this little mini-series, Why the Incarnation? Why did Jesus become a man? And, and we're using this verse uh, as a kind of anchor for it. And so last week we took a, a, a long look at that first verb, came. The Son of Man came, and we talked about how Jesus had pre-existed, that he had existed as God before eternity began. And we found out that one reason for the incarnation was so that God could be in Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians, reconciling the world to himself, that God could be in Christ, that that would allow him to refrain from pouring out upon us his divine anger at our sin, but he could, in effect, take it upon himself, that he could pour out all his anger upon himself, and that he could pay the price. We found that last week, and so he came, he came. Yes, as a son, as, as a child he was born, but as the son of God he came. And the cross of Calvary was not some primitive example of, of human sacrifice, but rather it was a loving God stepping into our experience and bearing our sin and shame upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. This week, I want to look at the second verb in that short little verse, the word seek, seek. And I want to begin by reading you some very familiar verses from another very familiar place, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, you can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read about four verses or so. Uh, it's not a happy chapter, but it's an important chapter. And here's what it says starting in, in verse 6 of Genesis 3. You'll recognize the context right away. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam, where are you? And so begins a process that has been going on now for several thousand years, the process of God searching for lost people. God seeking, searching for lost people. Probably the greatest difference between Christianity and every other religion on the face of the earth is that every other religion is in some way people trying to find God or people trying to please God, or work their way to whatever God or gods they believe in. But Christianity is precisely the opposite. Christianity is God-seeking people, broken people, lost people. It's God taking the initiative. It's God making the first move. It's God doing the searching. It's God doing the finding. And this is how it had to be, because as Romans 3 reminds us, actually quoting the Old Testament, there is none righteous, no, not one, there is no one who understands. 
There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who seeks God. Left to our own devices, we all do exactly what Adam and Eve did when we fall into sin. We try to cover up and we go into hiding. We don't take the initiative and we are going to die in our sin. Unless we have a God who will make the first move and who will come after us and who will hunt us down. By the time of the first Christmas, God had already been doing this for thousands of years, calling out to us, speaking to us through creation, speaking to us through the testimony of our consciences, speaking to us through his servants, the prophets, through his written word. But Hebrews 1 tells us something really cool. It says that in Christ, God went even farther, and he actually spoke to us face to face by revealing himself to us in the person of his son, in a human being. That's what Christmas is all about. Something that happens occasionally at my house is that um, Dawn will drop an earring back onto the bedroom carpet. And that's a crisis moment because those things are so small. And something in me just wants to help her find the earring back that fell on the bedroom carpet. But I can never do it just by looking down from six feet up, right? What do I need to do? I need to put my face right down on the floor level and look sideways. And then I might have a chance of, of finding that little earring back. What's the incarnation? What's Christmas about? Because God was seeking us, and the incarnation allowed him to get his face down to the floor and, and, and look sideways and seek us from our level, to seek us in a much more effective, much more intimate way by becoming one of us, by sharing in our struggles, by experiencing our weaknesses, by feeling our pain, by speaking with a human voice, by, by conversing with us face to face. It's the difference between trying to find a lost person with a helicopter or a drone and trying to find a lost person by going house to house, street to street, and looking in every corner to try to find that person. The incarnation was the culmination of the desperate search of a heartbroken God. The same God who was crying out in the garden, Adam, where are you? Where are you? He wanted to find us so much that he stooped as low as he possibly could to do it and to identify with us. The Son of Man came to seek to seek the lost by going through every nook and cranny in the incarnation, Jesus. It was the best way to do that. Let's go back for a minute to our verse in, in Luke. Because the, the verse comes from the story of Zacchaeus, which uh, we mentioned that last week, and Wes actually, the week before that, had gone through the whole chapter, really, when he was um, preaching to us about how lost people matter to God and he wants them found. But in Luke 19, I'll just go ahead and read you the passage because it's pretty short. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he couldn't see because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Zacchaeus who of course we know is a wee little man. 
he has to climb up into a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. So we'd probably call him a seeker today. You know, we like to use that terminology. But have you ever wondered what Zacchaeus' game plan was? So what? He's going to climb a tree to see Jesus. Jesus is going to go by. What's he going to do? Snap a picture? Take a selfie? I don't think he knew what he was going to do from that point on, do you? I mean, what next? All it says in verse 3 is that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. It doesn't say where he got the idea or why he was so curious that he goes so far as to climb a sycamore tree. It stands to reason, of course, that Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus from somebody telling him about Jesus at some time, at some point in his life. And whatever this situation was, something had happened to Zacchaeus that he really wanted to see Jesus. There, there had been a hook placed in Zacchaeus's heart that drove him to do this. And we know this because in verse 5, we see that Jesus is holding the fishing rod at the other end of this invisible hook. He's got him. He caught him. And Jesus says something kind of interesting and really very surprising. He says, Zacchaeus, first he calls him by name, which has got to be a shock to Zacchaeus. He's up in the tree. How does he know who I am? Zacchaeus. And then he says, he says this. He says, I must stay at your house today. Ever have somebody show up on your doorstep and say that? That's kind of a forceful way to invite yourself over, isn't it? Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. I have to. Well, you know what that kind of reminds me of, actually? It reminds me of another story in the Gospels, actually, in John chapter 4. You don't have to go there. I'll just tell you the story you may be familiar with. In John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling with his disciples from Galilee down to, uh, toward Jerusalem, to Judea. And it says there, at the beginning of John chapter 4, that he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Now, every Jew in Galilee knew that to go from Galilee to Jerusalem, you didn't have to go through Samaria. I mean, sure, it was, the, it was the most direct route as the crow flies to get there, but nobody did that because the Samaritans were a nation of half-breed heretics who were basically a lost cause, and so the rule was there was a nice convenient road where you can go just around the edge of Samaria and go down and avoid the hassle of having to interact with them and then cut over back into Judea and to Jerusalem. But it says in John 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? I'll tell you why. Because he had an appointment. He had an appointment with a woman at a well at 12 noon to not have lunch together on a certain day. And the appointment was not just with her, but with the whole village of lost people who would come to faith in him through her witness. And do you remember what Jesus said to that woman in John chapter 4, verse 24? He said, you know, the Father is seeking worshipers. I'm here because the Father is seeking worshipers. That's why Jesus had to go through Samaria, and that's why Jesus had to have lunch at Zacchaeus' house. I must stay at your house today. Why? He had an appointment. It was time for a lost person to be found, a person who had probably spent a lot of his life hiding in the shadows, in shame, lonely, rejected, not welcome in polite society because of his occupation, materially rich, but spiritually dead broke. But Jesus the ultimate seeker, found him, found him, and he was saved. Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Are you following Christ? Think back, think back. How did he find you? How did he find you? You've got a story, right? How did he find you? I, I have a really weird memory, and I, I'm not sure where it came from, but it's a pretty... 
It's a pretty vivid memory I have of a conversation that I had with my pastor when I was eight years old. And the funny thing is, it's not a conversation about spiritual things. It was a conversation about the Boston Red Sox. Um, my wife is saying, here we go, sports again. Yeah, sports again. But, but the reason that that's relevant is because it dates the conversation to October of 1975. Because in October of 1975, the Boston Red Sox were pretty much all that anyone in New England was talking about. Because they were actually in the midst of what became one of the classic World Series battles of all time, where they lost in seven games to the Cincinnati Reds, and I won't go into it because it's a painful memory. But... But, but what my pastor was doing in this conversation was he was making small talk with me about baseball while he was picking me up at my house to drive me to an Awana clubs meeting, kids club meeting that night at our church. Some of you have heard my testimony before. You know that I, I was saved through the Awana program, our kids club at our church. And that happened, I remember that happened in the late fall, early winter of my fourth grade year. Which means this conversation I had with this pastor took place just a few weeks before Jesus found me. Now, my parents were believers. They went to the church. But I had two little brothers who were not old enough to go to Awana because they didn't have cubbies and sparkies back then. They just had pals and pioneers and everything older than that. So they couldn't go. And my, my mom had to stay home with them. And my dad often worked late. So it was very hard to get me to the church on Tuesday nights. And the, this memory, which I have, reminded me and still reminds me that this pastor went several miles out of his way to another state, actually. The states are smaller up there, so you can get away with this. But, but he came to Massachusetts to pick me up to Kids Club and then, and then backtrack back to the church, across the border, back into Connecticut, every week, every, for, for the better part of two years. Now that I'm a pastor, I know how precious that short time can be in between coming home from the office or wherever you were at the end of the day and then going back to church for weeknight meetings. Sometimes it's the only time you get to spend with your wife and kids. And I know what it meant for this man to forfeit some of that time so he could go out of his way to drive me to the place where I first heard and understood the gospel. Jesus was seeking me. And although this pastor was not the person who led me to Christ, he was one of the bloodhounds that Jesus was using to track me down. And he found me. Jesus found me. So when I ask, how did Jesus find you? I'm also asking, who were the bloodhounds that he sent after you? Who were the people involved? Every person who was baptized up here this morning has a story, and it involves people. Some of those people are probably close relatives, like parents, who, who went out of their way to have a conversation. But there are also friends, teachers, VBS volunteers, coaches, maybe people who gave them a ride somewhere. Maybe people who just listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit and, and stopped to talk to them one time instead of passing by. But I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you that in every case, there was at least one person who took a cue from Jesus and went out of his or her way to do some seeking. That's how people come to Christ. That's how they were found. So then, of course, the last question I have to ask you is this one. For whom does God want you to seek? Who does he want you to look for? Since, since you know from experience that he uses people like you in the process of seeking the lost, who is the lost face on your spiritual milk carton right now? And what do you have to do to join with Jesus in the process of finding that person? What's the next step? 
We have a word we use sometimes when we talk about reaching out to non-Christians. We'll sometimes talk about being an incarnational presence. We're an incarnational presence. And what does that mean? It obviously does not mean that we are God taking on humanity. It's not that kind of incarnation like it was with Jesus at Christmas. What it does mean is that we're following Christ's example by walking side by side with lost people, getting onto their level, speaking their language, sharing the good news of Jesus with them, not as a teacher, not as a lecturer, but simply as a fellow human being. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The only difference between you and them being that you, at some point along the line, got found. And that hasn't happened to them yet. That's it. When you were hopelessly lost, Jesus, the Son of God, became the Son of Man. He underwent an unthinkable transformation. And he bridged an ocean to come and find you. So he went pretty far, wouldn't you say? How far out of your way will you go to be part of his search and rescue mission? Let's pray.